Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Emmanuel Assemblies of God in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're so glad you've taken the time to listen. If you're ever in our area, we invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For times and locations, please visit at EmmanuelAG.com. So we're going to continue our series, Summer in the Psalms. Um, how many of you been here for the last two weeks? Anybody? All right, so you caught the, the whole series so far. We're going to have two more weeks, today and next week, and then we're going to end it. Um, and we'll be segueing uh, into some new things that I'm really excited about as well. But Summer in the Psalms has been a lot of fun for me. You know, a lot of, a lot of the Psalms uh, we've talked about are laments, um, can even be a range of emotions, but they're just so raw. They're just so authentic. Uh, over 50% of them being written by, by David. And the one we're going to look at again today is as well. So we started two weeks ago with Psalm 23, one of the most common, most popular psalms that you hear preached, that you hear lyrics stolen from, that you hear in funerals, weddings alike, Psalm 23, where we see the goodness of God. And we see His goodness as our shepherd and guide, as well as our host. He puts a table before us, even in the presence of our enemies. What a good God. What a good God that He takes things upon Himself that we don't have to carry. That He is the God who carries us through, even through that valley of the shadow of death. No matter what we go through, He causes our cup to overflow. He, he leads us by those, those streams. Remember we talked about it, literally it means waters of rest in the Hebrew. So powerful. And after that, after we looked at God's goodness as our shepherd and our guide, last week we looked at Psalm 27. You may not be able to go back and catch last week's on podcast. It, uh, we had some issues with the recording, um, and so it's just it, it didn't turn out as good of quality. We're not sure if we're going to be able to save it, so I'm going to give you a little bit of a snapshot. We talked about a couple of key things based on Psalm 27. We specifically looked at Psalm 27, verse 4, right here. And we looked at everything through the lens of, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. Amen. And David, again, is pinning this, is writing this psalm. And we looked at so many different things that, that we could literally look at through the lens of Psalm 27.4. And, and I specifically looked at these three areas of our head, meaning our thoughts. How do, we, how do we seek God first in our thoughts? What does it look like? to also seek Him in our emotions, speaking of our hearts, and then, of course, our hands. And we looked at how we even take thoughts captive and, and begin to see His kingdom established through what we entertain right here. That is so, so important. One of the first things that I see the enemy berating us and berating me and hitting me is, is in my thoughts. And what I will allow to entertain will quickly develop what kind of emotions I have after that. Um, and then my emotions lead to either all kinds of ups and downs, roller coasters of life. Does anybody else relate to what I go through? And I think we all sense that the enemy attacks us in similar ways. But if we say, God, one thing I ask, this is what I seek. I want to see your kingdom, as Jesus would say. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And watch how all these other things will take care of themselves. We even looked at how most fears, Meshach, are, are never rational. Uh, you know, most, I say most, right? Because it's not an always and never, uh, but most of them are so irrational. And, and we looked at how, how when we seek God's kingdom first, He literally takes care of those things that most of the time the, the enemy wants to incite fear in our hearts over. And so we want to continue on this series, on this journey, as we um, will kind of shift gears today. 
I'll have to admit that today's is a little bit heavier. We're going to look at a topic that I've never spoken on before. Um, I don't go to a lot of church services that we address this, but it is a psalm that is very, very powerful. And it will talk about where we've come from is knowing Him as our shepherd, how we seek Him first, but then also there are moments in our lives where life has just happened. And we find ourselves in places we never thought we would be. We've said things that we never thought we would say. We've done things that we never thought we would do. And we're going to look at a psalm today that's a psalm of repentance. And it's a very, again, a very raw psalm. And so before we get there, I want to, I want to talk about a little bit of, of where this psalm comes from. What is happening? You know, throughout the years, before I give up what psalm it is, there have been movies made about this one. And I think the reason there have been so many movies is because, again, King David is writing this. He's a man who holds authority and power. And I think liberals love it when they can find something, especially within Christianity, where there's been an abuse of authority. Oh, man, what a great movie that would make. And I think that's why we see so many depictions of this. And I had to be careful when I was kind of Googling it uh, that I wouldn't get too many accountability reports sent to my wife on what I was Googling. But as we looked at today's message, you're going to see that Oh yeah, I could see how, wow, how scandalous. What a, what a situation. I can't believe David even got himself in that. How, how could he have even allowed that? Well, journey with me for a moment. We're going to go back to understand this psalm. We're going to go to 2 Samuel 11. And you might remember the situation, even some of the details. It goes a little like this. It was springtime, the typical season for kings to go into battle. The rainy season is what this really means is, is over in the Middle East. That's what springtime represented. When the rainy season had ended, that means that what had traditionally been muddy roads are now dry and travelable. And so the kings would now, you know, set out on their conquest and, and battle would begin. And, and here they are, meaning now the spring rains are, are over and there's plenty of food for folks and animals as well as, as they go out to pillage other nations. And we read that Israel is wrecking havoc in 2 Samuel 11 among the Ammonites. I mean, they're kicking butt and taking names, Branson. That's what's happening. And so we go to 2 Samuel 11.1. 1. It says, In the springtime, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And this is where today's story begins. But David remained in Jerusalem. I remember Pastor James used to say that there are some big butts in the Bible, and this is one of them. And, uh, you know, what was he always say? I like big butts and I cannot lie. This is, this is one of those. Uh, this is a, a big transition of understanding the context of what's about to happen. But David remained in Jerusalem. The Bible tells us it was the middle of the day. It was afternoon. And David's walking around on the rooftop. And he looks down and he sees a young woman who's very attractive. In today's terms, she's hot. All right? And he decides that, I want that. And so he sends his servants to retrieve her. And, he, and she comes and they commit adultery. And she becomes pregnant. And that's where today's story really gets started. Where it's conceived, so to speak even in the heart of David. But listen to what happens. Folks were reminding David who this was. Do you know who that was, David? That's Uriah's wife. And I believe based on the conversation that David has with Uriah, he knew him and he knew him well. 
And Uriah was off fighting in battle when David had sent him, had sent for her to come to the palace. But here comes Uriah. He's asked uh, Joab to send for him and to send him to the palace. And David pretends to, to care about how things are going. Hey, how's, how's the war going? How's the battle going? How are you doing? I mean, kind of is kind of showing a little bit of uh, false concern, so to speak, if you read the, the passage in 2 Samuel 11. And then he says, okay, here's what I'd love for you to do after, you know, you've, you've been here. I've gotten to see you. I'm so glad. Guess what? You're home, man. Go, go spend some time with your wife. Go, go do what married people do is what he's hoping. Failed attempt number one. Uriah would not do anything except stand in solidarity with his brothers who were in battle. You see, those that were off in war, they weren't getting to uh, go to Starbucks, uh, Meshach. They weren't having you know, the finest coffee. They weren't eating the finest foods. They weren't getting to um, spend time with their families or their wives. And so Uriah took this seriously. He wanted to show his, his band of brothers honor. And he does that by saying, I will not. I will not partake in what my brothers cannot partake of. I won't go into my home and sleep in the comforts of my bed and, and lie with my wife. I won't do that. He showed more honor in a moment where David was hoping he would dishonor them because David has already wrapped this up in so much dishonor. But, but Uriah's he's being the greater man in this moment. And he sleeps outside on the porch, the Scriptures tell us. And David says, okay, well, that didn't work. Take two. So the next day, he has him over to the palace again. David has Uriah over, and they have some Super Bowl hors d'oeuvres, I think, is what they, you know, David cooked up some food, it says, and got some snacks, and got him drunk. Got Uriah drunk. And the goal was, is that Uriah will be so drunk that he will now do what I was hoping he didn't do yesterday, that he will go home, he will sleep in the comforts of his home, he will even lie with his wife, and no one will know the difference. doesn't work again. Uriah is more honorable than David is in this moment. And Uriah refuses to cross the threshold of his home. And he sleeps outside again. As a matter of fact, the Scripture says this time that he slept with David's servants outside of the palace. Uriah is not, not going to dishonor his band of brothers. Little does he know that the whole situation that he is being set up for is full of nothing but dishonor. Dishonor to God's Word. Dishonor to his wife and his home that he has no idea has even happened. Third attempt. And this is where David crosses into another realm of how he's going to cover his tracks. Uriah comes into the palace that third day. And David says, hey, here, I've, I've, got, a, I've got a letter. I want you to take this. Run with this back to Joab and give them this instructions. Literally, Uriah is carrying his death sentence in his own hand. He runs back to his, his officer uh, in command and he gives him the instructions of the king. Uriah obviously never opening that. And I think David knew he never would because look what he did the past two days. He is not going to show dishonor. Not to the king if he's not going to to his men. So Uriah is literally carrying the instructions, Branson, that say this. Joab is going to open it and it says, I want you to begin to pillage the Ammonites again. Go into battle against them in their own territory and put Uriah on the front lines. And then I want everyone else to pull back. It was a plan of murder. And as the prophet would come to him, he would literally declare that later on. And that's where we're going to travel today. Here it is in verse 14. 
In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to Uriah. And sent it with Uriah. Isn't that crazy? The gall that David had to be able to send his own death wish with the man that he's trying to kill. And in verse 15, in it he wrote, Put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Verse 16, so while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. Verse 17, when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. And so they would come back and and report this to David. And the servant who was reporting this to David has to kind of uh, give an elaborate story of what happened because he's not quite sure why he's sharing all the details that he is. He's not really sure why the fact that Uriah died fits into the rest of this failed attempt. He doesn't even realize that this failed attempt was intentional. This servant is coming and he's giving a litany of details. Man, we were out there. They were shooting arrows like this. He gives all these extras because he doesn't realize what he's reporting. He's reporting that your assassination attempts were successful. Uriah, your servant, is dead. And so when David hears that, he knows that his plans of covering his tracks, they were successful, or so he thought. And I think that sometimes we find ourselves in, in maybe places that we never thought we would be, and it becomes so easy because the first thing we want to do is exactly what we've been doing since the beginning. Since the garden, we sense the guilt and the shame and the weight of what we have done or what we have eaten of and tasted in this life. And we immediately want to cover ourselves. We want to conceal. We want to hide. We don't want to be vulnerable because, heaven forbid, people know what we have done and see us for who we are. They might think different of us. And I think this is where, oh, Jesus loves to step into where we are and meet us right there and say, if you won't expose yourself, you will never find complete freedom. If you can't come and know yourself fully, you'll never know me and my goodness and my grace fully. And there's a God of mercy that is waiting to meet us. But what we see here is David thinking that he can cover his tracks. And are you catching how crooked this whole situation is? Here we are, we're talking about King David, right? The one who's going to be in the lineage of Christ, a type, even David, a type of the Messiah. He was anointed as a teenager, he went to youth camp and they poured oil on his head and declared that you, you know, that, that night where they declare over your calling, right? You're going to be the king of Israel, right? And he wrote it on this card and it was so exciting, right? There, there was amazing things going on in David's life even as a youngster. He's the one who I believe, like I said last week on the hillside as a young boy watching the sheep, began to have his heart enthralled with the one. And he could be able to say things like this, that who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may dwell in his holy place? And he would write things like, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. David had seen something. He would say that better is one day in your courts, better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere. He would say like we looked at last week that, man, this is one thing that I ask. This is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But yet David is finding himself somewhere that I don't think he ever thought he would be. Something has happened in his heart. And and I wonder, is this the same David that Acts 13.22 would record this about? Is this the same David that, that it would write there, 
say that after removing Saul, he made David their king, and God testified. God says of him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Is he really? Is he really a man after God's own heart? And I wrestle with this verse a little bit, knowing the rest of the story, knowing what David experienced and did, and even welcomed into his own life, because he stayed in Jerusalem. He was out of place. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. And obviously something not only physically was happening, something internally had already predated the fact that he stayed in Jerusalem. There was something going on in David's heart where his love and his passion, his devotion for the Lord had already waxed and waned enough that he would be able to find himself in a place that he knew he wasn't supposed to be. And I think when we find ourselves sometimes in places we're not supposed to be and boredom sets in, I don't know about you, but when I get bored, I usually get in trouble too. I usually find myself to something to do, and it's not always something that's productive. And that's where David found himself that day in the middle of the afternoon. He got up from his couch and he walked around because he was bored on his rooftop and his heart was already vulnerable. And it was vulnerable that when he saw something that he liked, even though it was sin and he knew it was, that he didn't have the guardrails to protect him. He didn't have the bandwidth in his life to say that my heart is close enough to the Lord now as it was on that hillside as a boy. That the one who would say better is one day Man, but I'm about to create a mess in my life. But I, his heart had, had obviously grown cold from that point. He wasn't that same place. And so today as we look at this, this is pretty heavy, but I, I want us to answer this question. How could he be a man after God's own heart? What was it that marked him as different? And so I'm setting all this up so that we can answer this question. And I'm gonna, we're gonna land this big, huge epiphany of, of a theology at the end. And I want to guarantee that you're going to be underwhelmed. It's gonna be so rote and routine, trivial even. You're gonna be like, really, Michael? That's, that's the big idea. That's the big point you want to convey to us. But it's an answer to this question. Was David really a man after God's own heart? What distinguished him that even in his muck and mire, Jim, even in the mess that he could create, what made him different in those moments from me or for you? How could the Lord consider us a person after his heart? Let's look at this again. Would you travel with me as we dive into this a little bit more? I want to look at 2 Samuel. Oops, I'm going to skip this a little bit because I kind of already read that verse. 2 Samuel chapter 12 now. And this is where the prophet comes to him. <clears throat> and before I get here, I just want to share something personal even. You may have heard me mention it before. Um, you know, when things were going on in transition at Kiko, and it was pretty stressful with my parents, and uh, I even, you know, even was hitting a ceiling just personally, internally. Um, I wasn't being real visible about it in, in other ways. My wife didn't know what was going on. And um, I had just really, I had bottomed out. And um, I knew I had hit the ceiling. It was literally the day before her birthday. It was January 19th. And I remember what was going on um, even last year. And I thought, man, I've got to get help. I am just tapped out stress-wise. I mean, you can probably relate. Things had just, one thing after another, it had not slowed down, and I was internalizing it all. 
And because I wasn't really finding a way to, to deal with it, I began to call some folks that I thought could help. I called Ebenezer um, Counseling Services, and I knew that they were a good Christian counselor. And I found out how much it was, and I'll be honest with you, I thought, I can figure this out on my own. That's really expensive. I'll just be honest. That was my thought when I hung up the phone. I was like, there's no way I can, I'm going to swing that. There's no way I'm going to do that. And, and I, so I made that decision that I was just going to kind of uh, grin and bear it, and I was going to continue to internalize it, right? Finally, things did not get better. And by March, um, I end up, I end up calling back and I'm like, can I work out a payment plan? Can we do something? I really need to come. And, um, they, they worked with me. I only went a few times. But what that time did for me, and I say all this because I'll be honest, we think that, that you have to have it together because you're a Christian. Um, we've also given a stigma to what we want to classify as mental health. Um, and, and I'll just be honest, depression is the common cold of, of mental, mental health today. And we don't know in the church how to handle some of these things because we don't know how to be vulnerable and talk about them. And we even think that the guy up front should definitely have it all together and never talk about these things. Because if he doesn't have it together, oh my goodness, no, I think it's quite the opposite. We've told ourselves these lies. And I, what I want you to hear is that, man, if God's still working in my life, then he can, he's still working in yours. If he's not done with me, he's not done with you. And I think that's the, the victory that we miss when the enemy wants to sidebar defeat and us overcoming it through vulnerability and honesty. And so I say all that to hopefully say, hey, there's no shame that we walk through life and it gets hard sometimes. And there is no shame in saying sometimes I need someone that is more professionally trained than my friends around me, which we still need to stay connected. How many of you know when we're walking through something? I isolated myself. And I walked through a deep moment, not, not, so, not as bad as what David had done, thank the Lord, right? My, I don't know if my wife would still be here or not. But, but I realized that I needed help and I needed help quick. And, and, and the accountability came in this. Yeah, I, I found someone that was listening to me and maybe gave me some good advice. Most of it I knew already. I, honestly, I knew everything he said. I, I had heard it before. But it was just the fact that I was able to verbalize it and get it out there. It was the fact that I, accountability-wise, especially since I was paying for it, Joyce, right? I'm like, man, if I'm putting this money out there, I'm going to do what he says I'm going to do, right? I'm going to get my bang for my buck. But it started a journey for me. And I look back at that. And I'm like, did it all get better? No, it sure didn't. Because I only went like two or three times. And I was like, I think I've got it figured out now. I'm good to go. Fast forward about six, seven months later, I thought I'd already hit my low. I hit a new one. I hit a new low. Does that happen to anyone else? And I think David is hitting some lows here that he never thought would happen in his life. And, in, and in, even though my situation and my circumstances were very different, I can relate to hitting some new lows that I never thought would happen. This time it was jeopardizing my life, the life of my, of my kids. It was some really stupid decisions that I was making. And it was a wake-up call. And I think sometimes we see this guy in verse 7 in different forms and fashion. And I want to read this. It says in 2 Samuel 12, verse 7, Then Nathan said to David, Then the Lord sent Nathan. And that's what I think is so powerful, is that God sent him in 2 Samuel chapter 12, and actually, I, I didn't have the verse in my slides here. I'm gonna, I want to read this because this is what really spoke to me and jumped out to me as I was, as I was reading this this week. 
2 Samuel chapter 12. Let me read this verse. Give me just a second here. It's verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. We just talked about everything that's happened in David's life. It's a mess right now. He's committed adultery. She's pregnant. Now murder. I think I've got my tracks covered, but Bathsheba, I'm sure, is on to me. Surely my servants know what's up, but they better not say anything because look what I'll do. But then I read the next line in that next chapter. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan is a prophet. Much like Samuel was who anointed him, Nathan is kind of his predecessor. A successor, I'm sorry. Um, he's following him. And when I read that this week, I just began to weep again. That the Lord would send a Nathan to a David in a situation like that. David's created this mess on his own. Let him clean it up. That would have been my therapy advice to him, right? But God loves him so much that he still sends his prophet to him. And I think about the Nathans in my life. Sometimes they've had different genders, different names. Sometimes they've been circumstances and all new lows. Sometimes it's a car wreck or it's hospitalization. Sometimes Nathan comes in so many different ways in our life, and it is that moment when we can decide what is going to happen next. The trajectory of our life is either going that way or that way, but there's no gray any longer. Those, that season is over. And for David, that's where he's at. He's at a crucial turning point. For me, I can relate because on that, in that new low and that new bottom, I knew things had to change and they had to change drastically. And the things that I had to choose to do weren't necessarily things that I would tell you were sin or not sin. We could even argue some of the things that I, that I decided to do as a result to put better guardrails in my life, which David is lacking right now. But I knew if I didn't want to find myself at a new low and a new low and a new low and a new low, then I had to do something different and I had to say, God, I give up. It's yours. He sent Nathan to me in the form of some new lows, in the conviction of the Holy Spirit, in people that were around me holding me accountable that I could say, man, I got to I gotta, I gotta get this off my chest. I've gotta talk about some of the stress I'm going through in the way that I'm handling, handling it that is unhealthy. And yet, here is Nathan says to David, after he gives this metaphor of a man with sheep and cattle, he uses this, this whole paradigm of having uh, cattle, and he says, man, there was this guy who was wealthy, and he had tons of cattle, and there was this man who was poor, but the man who's wealthy, he has a guest, and he wants to slaughter something and, and feed him and host him well, but he doesn't want to kill one of his own. So he takes one of the animals from the one who was poor, and says, yeah, let's kill that one. Yeah, no loss to me. And so David realizes that man had no pity. No pity. And David declares, that man should die. He should be put to death. And then Nathan says to him this. He says, you're the man. That is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. Verse 8, I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord? By doing what is evil in his eyes. You struck, you struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him 
with the sword of the Ammonites. He is placing that sword in David's hand. You're the one that did this. This was conceived in your heart. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And this is what I, I see here. I see how Saul, if he had lost the kingdom through rejecting the word of the Lord, David, David too is going to be judged because he has despised the word of the Lord. That's the word that he uses here. He says, why did you despise the word of the Lord? And you remember that's the very thing in 1 Samuel 15, 23 that is said of Saul. You are going to be rejected as king because you have rejected the word of the Lord. But now is David going to go skating by because he has despised the word of the Lord? And this is what I want us to hear today, that despising God's word, his written commands, as well as his word that became flesh, Jesus Christ, despising him in our lives will always lead to our demise. That's what we see here in David's story. And as it turns out, there were consequences And the consequences here are that the sword will never leave your house and that even right before you, there's going to be calamity in your own home. Before your eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And we see this in his own sons. He has three that are wayward. Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah. They all end up following in the footsteps of the sin of their dad. And here... The prophet continues to tell him. He said, what you did in secret, I'm going to do in broad daylight before all Israel. Because David didn't deal with the spiritual giants internally, his posterity had to deal with them. He may have slayed a nine-foot Philistine physically as a young boy, believing in the God, Yahweh, who he had seen on the mountainside. But because in this moment of his sin, the prophet is telling him, you didn't slay the spiritual giant of lust in your heart. And your family is going to see the reaping of what you have sown. That is what he's being told. It's pretty heavy. It's pretty hard. David, a man after my own heart? He will do everything I command him to do? The story's not over yet. And he says this. He said to to Nathan, I've sinned. I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replies, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. David had already pronounced his own judgment of death over the, the metaphor, the parable, so to speak. He says, our God is still full of grace. There are consequences, David. There's real consequences to what you've done. Some of those aren't going to be reversed. But there's still grace. You're not going to die. The death you will experience won't won't be spiritual or physical even in this life because he's faithful to forgive us when we confess our sins. And I think this is what distinguishes David. He says, because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son you born will die. The consequences will fall to him. And after Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. And this is what happens and where we find, I believe, Psalm 51, which is our psalm today. We find a psalm of repentance where David is literally riddled with what has just happened. But yet what happens? The Lord sent Nathan. The Lord in his deepest, darkest moment 
If he is still the Lord as our shepherd and he will walk with me even through the valley of the shadow of death. And David is saying right here in this moment, please God, have mercy on me. And we see what was pinned, I believe, at least in his heart, if not on paper in this moment in Psalm 51. And it literally, the title of it kind of says, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. That's the title for this psalm. And so we go to a few verses I want to read, one through five, and hopefully we'll be able to land this plane and answer my question. Have mercy on me, David says, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Verse two, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is always before me against you and you only have I sinned. Is that really true? He's, he's actually sinned against quite a few other people in this story. But the climax of it all is that God, it was ultimately against you. It was ultimately against you. Yes, I drug Bathsheba into this. Her husband is no longer alive as a result of it. I'm losing, the, the child that was conceived illegitimately is going to die. But David's hoping maybe, just maybe that doesn't have to be. He says, against you and you only have I sinned, Lord, and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And I want to jump now. I'm going to jump a few verses and go to verse 10. Let me me skip there real quick on my uh, tablet here and put it on the screen. He says, and this is what I think is remarkable in this moment, Create in me, God. Create in me a pure heart. Renew a steadfast spirit. Something had happened inside of him and he knew it. It's what landed him in Jerusalem when he should have been with the men in battle. Create in me, God, a pure heart and renew a a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Instead, would you restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me? And this is what I really think, that verse 11 is what is so remarkable. Even in the darkest valley, here is David saying, God, please don't cast me from your presence. I hear even when David has committed probably the gravest of sins in his life of adultery and murder, what does he go back to? That one thing. Oh God, does this mean I'm going to lose your presence? Lord, please, was there, if there's any way, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. To me, this is the depths of his repentance and what is all hinged on. Please, God, what you drew me with on the hillside, your presence, please don't take that from me. What you anointed me in as a worshiper and one who was after your heart, please, God, don't take your presence away from me. Don't cast me away. Don't take your Holy Spirit. Please, Lord, continue to send the Nathans in my life when I need them. Continue to allow the lows to be what they need to be and not have to need another one. God, that I could hear your voice, that my love could be awakened, that I don't have to keep going around this mountain of what I'm facing. And I believe that David had traveled through the process of what James talks about in, in chapter 1, where it says that, that after sin was conceived, what happens? It gives birth to something. 
And it was not what David was looking for. It says that after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And I believe this is what David has found himself caught up in, in this cycle of of desire being conceived and giving birth to sin, and, and ultimately it's leading to death and the death of the child that was conceived in it. And he's pleading for God's mercy. Please, He's no longer hiding. He's no longer concealing. He is being vulnerable. Here I am, God. Here's what's going on in my life. Here's what's in my heart. I don't know. I'm I'm out of control. I need something to help me regain that control. Be steadfast again inside me, Lord. I don't know what's happening. He's being so vulnerable and honest. And I believe, don't miss this point. It isn't until we are exposed for our sinfulness that we can fully experience Him for His righteousness. You will never be able to seek the Lord and His righteousness until you are fully vulnerable and say, God, here I am. I recognize who I am. Take a moment and remember who God is and who I am. I think so much of our reflection of the Lord never takes into consideration who He has made us to be. And even in our muck and mire, He still meets us there. That magnifies the goodness of God. It doesn't diminish it. But yet we're afraid, God, what if you see me for who I am? What if my wife finds out that I'm actually afraid of rejection and that's why I reacted in anger and, and, I, and I want control? What, I, I expose something in my heart. It's, what if she doesn't like it anymore? What if, what if the person, what if the people that I'm pastoring or talking to or that I'm an executive director of a ministry of, and what if they find out about all this stuff that I struggle with? Heaven forbid we find freedom because we've been vulnerable. The enemy will keep us capped in our concealment. He will keep us capped in that place of hiding, putting whatever we want over it so that we never experience the freedom he wants us to walk in. And I will, to the day I die, push for that, I pray. God, don't take away your presence. Send the Nathans if I need the Nathans. And let me walk in authenticity and vulnerability and ingenuineness with those around me. Because what it, some, of the, some of the words that we've kind of given language to here is encountering God and connecting with each other. But when we encounter the Lord, hopefully we see that His light does expose that darkness and as we're able to handle it, brings it to the surface. But we don't shy away from connection in those moments. How many of you know that's usually when the enemy really wants us to kind of cut off those strings of people that are caring for us and could be a positive influence. Instead, we're isolated and he's got us right where he wants us. The enemy's got us in his crosshairs. But I believe that it isn't until we are exposed for our sinfulness that we can fully experience him for his righteousness. And I believe we see David's heart not only in psalms of devotion and worship, but also in psalms of lamentations and repentance like this one. It is a heart of repentance. And that, when we're confronted, are we quick as David was to repent? His deepest desire is exposed, not for evil, but that the good God that he desires would be greater than this evil he is wrestling with currently. It reminds me so much when I think about what David is facing of what Paul would write in Romans chapter 7. I I do the things I do not want to do, and and I don't do the things I want to do. And, And I think David here is like, God, I only want your presence. I've screwed it up, haven't I? Please don't remove your Holy Spirit. Please, God, that's all I want. And he is literally, as as Samuel would tell us, 2 Samuel, he is prostrate before the Lord in this moment. 
And I believe Psalm 51 is literally what is going through his, his mouth. It is going through his mind, his heart and emotions. He is literally lamenting and crying out to God, prostrate in his palace. The cries are so loud that his servants are concerned for him. They come to him and touch him to make sure he's okay. They bring him food and water, and he refuses. David is broken before the Lord. And sometimes it's okay to be broken before the Lord. And people may not understand it. They may try to even shortcut that process. But let that brokenness that the Lord has birthed in you, let it carry to full fruition. Because I've experienced some brokenness, and I've cut it short. And you probably have too. But the process that the Lord was trying to develop inside of us in that moment was also aborted. And we never grew to full maturity the lesson that was to be learned in that. And so even if people say, hey, it's really not that bad, just, and I've, I've heard it even in this house, just choose joy in these moments. And those are, those are true. Those are true in time and place. But sometimes there's a brokenness that truly needs to be felt and walked through as well. There's a contrition, and I'm not talking about worldly sorrow where we heap more condemnation on ourselves. Hear me clearly. Paul distinguishes the two between godly sorrow that leads to repentance and change and transformation that only the Holy Spirit can bring about. And then there's worldly sorrow, which is where I believe we really just beat ourselves up. And we really heap the condemnation and the guilt. But there is no freedom in it, and there's never any truth or light. But the difference is, is God, when He brings that repentance and He brings that sorrow, it leads to fruit. It may hurt in the valley, but He is putting us back together. And He will be with us. He makes our cup overflow. He is a good God. So how? How, based on this verse, could He be a good God that He would not cast us from His presence, that He would not take His Holy Spirit from me? And how could David be someone who is after his own heart? How could that be? Because I believe that David, even in his imperfection, he was quick to repent. He was quick to repent. And I believe that's what makes him a man after God's own heart. That when the Nathan is sent in our lives, are we quick to repent? Do we learn from what he is trying to teach us? Or are we going to be stubborn and say, no, I don't, I don't need to learn that. That's not what I want. I want to do my own thing. I harden my heart. Or is it softened when the Spirit comes to us because we want His presence? I'm not asking, are you going to be perfect this week? I'm asking, are you going to be quick to turn to Him when He approaches you? Are you going to be soft enough to say, God, I want Your presence, whatever it means. If there's things that I'm ready that You're exposing, I want to deal with it. If it's a relationship that I've tried to hurry into fixing, God, I want to, I want to be patient that maybe You're teaching me something because I'm trying to fix them and probably not looking back this way. My wife's going to say a big amen probably here in a minute. I believe the Lord journeys with us through these things. And He allows us to have hearts as David. David's heart, which I believe was quick to repent. I don't get everything right. I mess up with my wife. I mess up with my kids. I'm not a perfect leader. But I hope at the end of the day, I have a heart that is willing to say on my darkest of days, do not cast me away from your presence, O God. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Bruce, would you come play for a minute? 
As he comes up, I want you to think about this because I know a lot of times we have crisis relationship with Jesus. What do I mean by that? I mean we turn to Jesus when everything's hitting the fan, but as soon as the dust has settled, well, maybe I don't need to be a part of church again. Maybe I really don't need to continue in my devotion and, and worship time, and maybe I don't need to continue to listen to those podcasts that are challenging me. We have that crisis relationship with Jesus. We come to Him when things are in crisis, when everything is going wrong and falling apart, we seek Him the most. But as soon as we get past the crisis management stage, we abandon shipped as well with Him. And he, doesn't, he wants to be in it with us, the good, the bad, the ugly. And I'm, I'm being a proponent here that we be vulnerable with him because he already knows and we can find freedom and we can find healing. Would you bow your heads with me? A.W. Tozer says this. He says he's either Lord of all or not Lord at all. And today I want to encourage you to draw the line in the sand of your heart. I know there's some areas that as I've been speaking the Lord has been speaking to you as well. I believe that He is saying some of these areas, you need to give yourself no way back. You know what they are. He is saying burn the bridges. Leave yourself no outs. Abandon the negative places, the people, the things that keep pulling you back to those moments of crisis in your life. Today, here's what I want to declare to you with no one looking around. Today, there is forgiveness. Today, His arm of salvation is not too short to save. Today, you can turn to the One who makes all things new. Today, His arms are open wide. His grace abounds. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Father, we thank You that You meet us where we are. That you are a God that is not afraid of our muck and mire. That you will reach down and you don't leave us there, but you pull us out. And God, we just have to look up and say, God, have mercy on me, son of David. (laughs) That we would call you the son of David. Make us someone who has a heart that is after yours, that is quick to repent. That when you send those wake-up calls, we wake up, Lord. Give us that sensitivity today. And if you're in this room and you would say, Lord, I need that. I need a wake-up call, Lord. I need to learn from the lessons you're trying to teach me. I am embracing, God, what you are speaking to me today. If that's you, would you just slip up your hand? I want to pray with you today. Amen. 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 Okay. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to us. God, I just pray for each and every one of us that are in this house and those that are listening, God. I pray that you would begin to create in our hearts, not hearts of stone, but exchange them for your hearts of flesh. We thank you that we walk in this new covenant, Lord, where your grace is infused and empowering us by your Holy Spirit. So today, God, I ask that you would fill your people. Fill your people with a perspective that is heavenward, that is eternally minded, Lord, that they would live from the places that you have seated them in heavenly places, that they would no longer be uh, as, as those that are down on the ground living with focuses of, of what's right in front of them, but, Lord, they would literally see things from the perspective of your throne. Lord, let them walk in your fullness of your love, the fullness of your grace. God, I pray that they would experience forgiveness in a deep way. Lord, I believe that in our hardest times, in our biggest struggles, Lord, that is when we can know humility and forgiveness and grace the greatest. So, Lord, I pray that this would be a revelation in this moment for us. This week, unpack this Holy Spirit within us. 
Speak to us, God, as we lay our heads down and as we rise up. Let your word ruminate within us. May it ever be on our lips. But God, may it be because it started in our hearts. Today, Lord, we turn to you. In your name we pray. Amen.